Welcome to Ground Cover. I'm Lorraine Gordon from the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance at Southern Cross University. Today on episode two of Ground Cover, we will interview Dr. Charles Massey, a well-known grazier from Cooma in the southern snowies of New South Wales, a man who through a paradigm shift in the middle of a very tough drought, realised his ignorance as a conventional and industrial farmer to go on to be a famous author and academic, author of Breaking the Sheep's Back and the one we all know and refer to often as Call of the Reed Warbler. A national and internationally significant figure, Charlie talks about the timing for transformative change being ripe, farmers being intimate with their own landscape and environment. We talk about challenging powerful paradigms, capitalism, economic rationalism, endless growth, and of course, industrialisation. Charlie then refers to the Anthropocene, the greatest challenge our species has ever confronted, and that regenerative agricultural practices will be the answer. He mentions the importance of regenerative ag in capturing carbon, and referring to regenerative ag as a revolution. The evidence of climate change is mounting, therefore regenerative ag is growing as a solution. Charlie defines regenerative ag as empowering nature to do the work to self-organise back to health. He talks about understanding the five basic functions of healthy landscapes. Solar energy, water, soil, mineral cycles, biodiversity, and of course, the fifth one that he talks a lot about in his book, being humans. He discusses the importance of true ecological literacy to improve landscapes. According to Charlie, the shocks will keep coming, and ironically, that will be the hope that triggers change. Charlie touches on the glyphosate issue in Australia, and the fact that evidence is mounting up, that there are cover-ups that have happened by the big chemical companies, and that basically we are treading on vested interests and powerful paradigms. But all of this will lead to a new era, so he puts a very positive slant on his story. I'm absolutely delighted to have Dr. Charles Massey as a guest on our podcast series today. Enjoy. Welcome to Ground Cover with your host, Kerry Cochran, proudly brought to you by the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance and Southern Cross University. This is a show for farmers by farmers, a uniquely Australian podcast series exploring real-life stories of land managers who have undertaken the transition from conventional farming to regenerative agriculture. Each week, we'll share a unique and honest conversation about the challenges and opportunities of regenerative agriculture so you can make informed decisions about how to best manage your land. Well, where do we begin this extraordinary story of a farmer from the southern tablelands in New South Wales who senses a problem with his own farm and with Australian agriculture? and decides to go back to university in his 50s and do a PhD, and why it is that the environment seems to be receding in its capacity and in its resilience. That person, you have probably guessed by now, is Charlie Massey, now known as Dr. Charlie Massey, following the award of a PhD from the Australian National University. A consequence of that PhD was an approach by a publisher to write a book on his thoughts, and that book became the very popular the core of the reed warbler, a new agriculture, a new earth. Charlie Massey is with me today to continue our exploration of the leading lights of the regenerative farming movement. 
Charlie, welcome and congratulations. You must be very satisfied and quite exhausted. Is that a fair summary? Yes, Maureen Kerry, uh, it is. Um, certainly didn't expect the response and it's led to a lot of international and national travel and workshops and talks. But I guess, as you know, you don't often get a window of opportunity to spread ideas that you think are really critically important, not just for our landscapes, but the, the planetary health. So I guess that's why I'm on the run. Do you put that the success down to the way you have written it or the case studies you've used, or is it simply that we're waiting for something like this to happen? I think it's a combination, Kerry. Um, you can't pick timing, as you know. When I did my thesis, I realised there's some absolutely wonderful stories and examples of transformative change in our landscapes back towards health. And I think those stories, uh, I mean, we're a species made for story. It's deeply embedded in our ancient mind and our metaphors. And so what I tried to do in writing the book was just around the framework of an understanding of ecological literacy, just tell these great stories and uh, but also try and embed it in our own landscape. So, and I've always been a naturalist. I think uh, one of the characteristics of regenerative farmers is, is they become intimately involved with nature and their own landscapes. And I tried to capture those elements through my own eyes, if you like. And how have people responded to that message? I, I know it's been a success, but have you found in your audience there's those who embrace it and there's those who who are not quite sure what you're on about? Oh, a bit of both. Um, and occasionally when you're talking to more reductionist scientists or, you know, serious industrial farmers, um, a bit of anger, but that's to be expected because we're challenging very powerful paradigms. And uh, But overall, the book gets sort of into the bestseller class, as I understand now, both nationally and internationally. And I think that's just reflecting that uh, the timing was right for a story that's both personal and about these wonderful examples. And uh, that, that I guess the big positive, Kerry, is the solutions that these regenerative farmers are putting together are some of the very best to address both our Anthropocene crisis as it accelerates and the human health crisis. And so it's a great story, basically, that I was just sort of uh, interpreting and telling. When you say the Anthropocene, could you just tease that out a little bit? Yeah, well, what I uh, discovered going back to uni, well, I was aware of it before, but Australian National University Fenner School of Environment and Society is some of the world leaders in not just climate but other Earth systems. But people get hung up on this climate challenge, but there's actually nine integrated Earth systems that sustain the health of our planet. And it's important to understand that that blue-green planet, it's the only one we know not just in the solar system, but wider. And it's blue-green because life itself created conditions for life. So, you know, bacteria over three billion years ago put oxygen up in the atmosphere to start the process and so on and so on. And the tragedy is now in the last sort of, especially the last two centuries of industrial agriculture and uh, modern capitalism, one species of life, which is us, has started to destabilise what really is that last 12,000 years or so of, of very stable climatic and environmental conditions that it's known as the Holocene after the violent, you know, over 100,000 years of the Ice Ages. And because of that stability, agriculture evolved over 10,000 years ago and then from that came human civilization. But with the rise of modern capitalism 
and the aggressive greed for endless growth under this sort of suicidal policy of economic rationalism, uh, we are now starting to destabilise all of those Earth systems of which climate is one. And, and some of them, a number of scientists believe, we've got into very almost dangerous runaway territory. So it's called the Anthropocene because it's human caused, this new epoch that Earth's moved into. It's, it's regenerative agriculture in terms of a whole range of factors, not just pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, but addressing biodiversity loss, land systems change, water degradation, etc. It's regenerative ag that can really provide a lot of the positive solutions to, well, I guess when I look, reflect on human history, I would say the Anthropocene is the greatest challenge our species has ever confronted, much worse than world wars or anything like that. So we desperately need solutions. Your message is, is a very long-term one. It, it's looking well into the future, and, and it's not. But in a way, I think those listening to your story would say, well, that is for my children or for my grandchildren rather than for today. There's not much I can do today. And in, in that sense, we are short-term thinkers, not long-term thinkers. And in that sense, um, there's a difficulty in, in you getting your message across to the rank and file. Don't quite agree, um, but I, I mean, you're right. We are short-term thinkers and uh, this is a process of long cycles, et cetera, et cetera. But I believe if we really put it in colloquial terms, extract our, our digit and get on with it, we, we can provide quite fast turnarounds. And, um, you know, recently I've begun working with Paul Hawken, uh, one of the world's leading thinkers in the last few decades in the environmental and social area. and he. He organised, arranged and uh, oversaw the book called Drawdown, which took 15 years of research with 80-odd scientists and analysts to come up with the 100 best methods of pulling carbon dioxide down out of the atmosphere or preventing it going up. And look, working with Paul uh, and looking at the best methods, if you combine the regenerative agriculture methods in there and put them together and just call them Regen Ag, we have the number one best method by nearly two and a half times the next best method of pulling. That's the importance of regenerative ag. If it's well implemented, it can be reasonably quick and, and we have the capacity to readdress that key factor. And once you start putting a lot of carbon in the ground, a lot of the regeneration of the other landscape functions follows. So, it, you know, it is long term, but it's short term as well, Kerry. Yeah. Could you carry that over into the political arena and say that maybe our policies then are not favouring farmers doing or approaching their production in that way? Well, absolutely right. I mean, every great society in history tells itself a sort of fundamental central story. Uh, it could be to do with the emperor or your religion. Ours has to do with economic rationalism, endless growth, which is basically for endless greed and enhanced GDP and all that. And we've all sort of caught up in it, but it's, it's the thing that's driving us into the Anthropocene through destroying Earth-sustaining systems. The problem with that is that the leadership in the Western world and now the communist world is predicated on that. That means government departments, government policy, university policy, because they're funded, a lot of them, by that direction, and therefore departments of agriculture, etc. It's all predicated on that premise. And what regenerative agriculture is trying to do and, and urban people supporting this and healthy food, etc., is really against that powerful current, and that's our challenge. And so 
I call this an underground revolution, paying on soil, obviously, but it's a revolution from the bottom up because a change won't come from the top. They're all locked into this false and destructive uh, worldview. This is a David and Goliath struggle, Charlie. Uh, you spoke about governments and universities and all these instrumentalities that favour the status quo. So I'm not quite sure how David achieves any progress here. Well, David's achieving a lot of progress, <laughs> to be positive. If you look at the worldwide movement, I don't think it's um, an impossible task we've got because it's, it's not slow progress that's happening. There's, there's, there's an enormous shift going on around the world towards addressing this Anthropocene through regenerative agriculture. If you, if you think about ecological grazing, there's now tens of millions of hectares and organic farming and, and uh, agroforestry, silvopastoral. That's really gathering speed and galloping along. And so I think, yes, it looks like it's an impossible task, but, you know, David achieved it and I think we have to be the Davids. I think you can get to tipping points and as, as the, the message and evidence on climate and other things keeps mounting, people are going to start reacting and, and it could get to a tipping point and it's, it's sort of certainly the adoption in regenerative agriculture is already, I think, got past the early adopter stage moving into the next phase. When you say working with nature is what farmers should do, many farmers would respond by saying that they do work with nature. I plough my land, I sow my crops, I give them fertilisers, I get rid of weeds with the aid of chemicals in the drum, I look after my livestock, etc., etc. In other words, they say, I regard myself as a thoughtful and productive farmer. So how do you address that? It's a really good question because... Almost all farmers don't deliberately set out to do damage. They, they truly believe what you've said, that they're working with nature. But we now know, almost starting, you know, eight, 9,000 years ago with the first development of the plough, that once you start disturbing the soil, even though it might release nutrients for your next crop, it's actually the first pathway towards desertifying country, which is what we've been very good at. And if you think about available agricultural land around the world, we humans have nearly degraded 40% of total available agricultural land in the last few thousand years. So we're very powerful. We're doing it because really we don't realise what we're doing. So the minute you start ploughing, spraying, simplifying your landscape and all its key functions that are interrelated, growing monocultural crops, all those sorts of things that nature never does naturally, Without realising it, we are starting to do long-term damage and that's why you suddenly get to tipping points and increasing deserts, etc. So when we talk about working with nature, it actually means, and that's what I believe regenerative agriculture means, it means empowering nature to do the work, to self-organise back to health because she's had millions of years to do it. And that means um, growing crops, whether it's you know, multi-species cover crops and other methods, without disturbing the soil or killing the biology. It means enhancing the water cycle with more carbon in the ground. And then from all those things comes more biodiversity and so on and so on and, and more water stored in the ground. So it's actually learning to allow nature to do the work and regenerate rather than thinking that uh, we're working with nature when in effect we're actually continuing to simplify and damage her functions. If your five landscape functions are so important, and indeed they seem to be, is there a case then for farmers' ecological literacy in, rela in relation to those five landscape functions to be made part of a, a course of some description so that this knowledge base is spread throughout the community, the farming community? 
Absolutely, Kerry. I think it's all about uh, a misunderstanding on what happens when we farm. Uh, after ABC and a bit of maths and stuff, I would have thought that the key thing taught from primary school right through is a knowledge of how nature works and our understanding of nature and those sorts of studies. And, and you and I know there's been a battle even to get the first agricultural course up on regenerative agriculture and it's about to emerge at Southern Cross University but I know you for years for example have been trying to teach through human ecology these sorts of principles. To me once we've learned our alphabet and how to count etc an understanding of ecological literacy on how landscapes truly work should be the very first principle before we're allowed to hop in a tractor or, or go out mustering <laughs> livestock or whatever because at the moment and I speak from powerful evidence, you know, even though I was university trained, I didn't know how my landscape works. I did a lot of damage to it. And it was only after going into debt with big droughts that I realised my ignorance and I set about trying to gain this understanding. And that's when I realised it's regenerative agriculture is such a powerful and important pathway if we're going to turn things around. Can we look at your farm now then? These five landscape functions, how did you introduce those and what impact did it have? Well, my, I had to come home and take over a farm at 22 when my father gained a heart attack. And even though I'd been um, a mad keen naturalist all my life, uh, I didn't know how to manage a farm. And so I sought the best advice, which was best in inverted brackets, the best local farmers, Department of Agriculture, CSRO, and I became a pretty good industrial farmer without realising the damage I was doing. So I walked into the five-year drought of the early 80s, tried to defend our main capital base that I thought was our merino stud and, and the, the ram sales. And so I've, I've, we've bought in a lot of grain, didn't destock, ended up with a big debt. And at the end of that, I realised I was going about it the wrong way. And, and from that came my realisation that I didn't understand how that landscape worked or any landscape worked. But there's five basic functions, if you like that drive uh, the way landscapes and healthy systems work. And uh, obviously the solar energy starts it, and from that comes a good water cycle and then a good soil mineral cycle and biodiversity. And in my book and, and talks, you know, I've added the fifth dimension, which is uh, the really problematical one, which is we humans. It's our paradigms and worldviews and how we apply it to our management that's critical. So. It was only then through doing a lot of reading and, and looking at what the top regenerative farmers were doing around Australia and, and the world that I, I came to start to get an understanding on landscape function and then did courses on regenerative grazing, etc. and from then proceeded. And I guess, Kerry, that's really what led to me seeing the need for a book that I saw, uh, really I was looking through my own eyes of, of a mistake-ridden journey, someone who might have been um, sympathetic to nature and yet still did enormous damage to it and, and how did that come about and, and so how, how do we get the message on true ecological literacy and humility out there in, in the way we manage landscapes? You seem to be living a dualistic uh, life there for a period. You were very much uh, an environmentalist but at the same time you were very much caught up in the mechanistic way of seeing the world which is the predominant worldview today apparently from what I read in your book. So that that tension that was in you is something that you actually mastered. Well, that's a really perceptive comment, Kerry, and that it does show you how the power of paradigms, uh, the worldviews, and, and uh, I know both of us have 
been interested in human ecology and how all that works. And uh, it's really paradigms that are hardwired in us. And what really revealed that to me was when I did a PhD in my late 50s, it was a good excuse to go around Australia looking at the top 80-odd regenerative farmers. The key question I asked was why had they shifted from that position I'd been in to a regenerative state? And in at least 60% of the cases, it was a major life shock that had cracked open their mind, it, you know, like a tortoise shell, a carapace. It took something like uh, a major chemical poisoning, being burnt in a bushfire. A lot of them said the big droughts of the 80s and the millennium drought was the headcracker, which was an interesting comment, and so on. And, and that just really illustrates the way we're trained and in family beliefs and stuff, that these paradigms are incredibly powerful. And uh, that's really uh, another reason for trying to write a book that maybe it, it can start to throw chinks of light through that uh, powerful carapace. It's, they say that uh, there are two types of change, uh, microscopic change, which happens every day, and macroscopic, which is quite big and involves the paradigm. And that one doesn't move into that uh, new paradigm unless you go some, through some sort of psychological adjustment, some psychological transformation. And that seems to be apparent in what you just said and what you say in your book. It is, and it's backed up by uh, you know, a few good pieces of psychological research elsewhere. I mean, as you and I would know, there's an old saying that the only people who like change are babies with wet nappies. <laughs> and that really sums up uh, in a way that it's an uncomfortable process and uh, no one wants to go through that unless, unless you have to. And uh, it's these shocks that let in, that in chinks of light that happen. But there's also a percentage of people who maybe naturally are more open to uh, thinking and, and in that other 30 or 40% of people I interviewed, it, it was sort of an accumulation of little things without the big shock that triggered change as well. So it's, it's a fascinating area and uh, not much research in it. But without doubt, uh, as we move further into the Anthropocene, you know, we, we're witnessing what's happening with climates, higher temperatures, increasing droughts, water shortages, etc. The shocks are going to keep coming and uh, that's, ironically, that could be the hope that will trigger faster change. If I could quote from your book, and I asked this question in reference to a podcast I did in this series with Tim Wright from Armadale, when he spoke about the peace and contentment he feels now about his farm and all that he sees and feels. And in that context, you make the following statement referring to regenerative agriculture. You say, this creative self-making process is also one that gives higher meaning values and a spiritual dimension to our lives, a reality I found in my investigation for regenerative farmers who had undergone a mind shift from the mechanical to a newly emergent mind. So what is it about Regen Ag that creates that outcome? That's a really good question. It seems to be that, and I look back on my role as an industrial farmer where I'm creating more problems than I'm solving in a way, or I was, you seem to be more of a problem solver than than positive, unexpected, remarkable regeneration and occurrences. And moving in the regenerative agriculture space, I've, I've noticed it's so positive. There's so much more excitement that once you've made the change and once you see regeneration happening, et cetera, et cetera. And some of those words uh, that you've just quoted, like emergent, when, when I went back to university after 40 years since my undergraduate, I, I had to catch up on 40 years in computers, systems thinking, soft systems thinking, all that uh, sort of research and knowledge, and, and particularly in complex adaptive systems, which are 
landscapes, ecological systems, the earth systems, etc. I had to teach a course to masters in this area and uh, regenerative ag, masters and third year students. So I had to get my head around it. And if you look at how complex adaptive systems work, there's a few key f- features. Uh, there's about 12, but I, I won't go into them. But other than things like keystone species, the ones that really hit me were the, the idea that systems can self-organise themselves back to a, a more advanced, more complexity state of health if allowed. And, and what a natural system, if you think about our landscape, is doing, it's, it's using properties that lie within it already to do that, and they're called emergent properties. And this concept that we can step back by better management and allow nature to self-organise herself back to health or, or a better stage of health uh, struck me as incredibly exciting. And, and in a way, it's happening to the human mind as, as we throw over a paradigm and move into a new area. And, and move around with positive people and, and get hungry for more and more knowledge. That, that sort of process seems to be part of the excitement and the positivity that you find in this regenerative agriculture space. It's interesting because there's a, you're referring to the tension between this, this world where the farmer interferes in nature and this world where nature is allowed to do what it needs to do. And when you're talking about nature allowing it to do what it needs to do, you're talking about terms like self-organisation and emergence. Now, they're two terms that farmers have never come to terms with in terms of the tradition, which is a more scientific approach to the farming. So once we get our understanding around those two terms, which is all to do with systems, then it may well be much easier to introduce regenerative agriculture. I think you're absolutely right, Kerry. I mean, if we started to teach from school level right through how nature really functions as integrated systems that can self-organise with all those other characteristics, it's sort of not getting you entrenched into the old paradigm of control and command where we have to dominate and interfere and stir up and do all that. It, it's, it's uh, you know, if you look at what's happening in the tens of millions of hectares globally with regenerative agriculture, it's the animals as they were with the African herds or the 80 million on bison in North America that are doing the, uh, the, the the hard yards for you in a natural way to stimulate this extraordinary response in the grasslands, et cetera. And same with uh, the new cropping methods of multi-species covers, et cetera, which lead to these tipping points. And, you know, scientific knowledge helps us here because we now know that remarkable things in the soil like quorum sensing get triggered once you get to certain levels of... Uh, healthy soil, etc. So it's in a way it, it's about the humility to let nature do it rather than we humans being the commanders and controllers. In your book, you are very critical of Roundup and its principal ingredient, glyphosate. Have recent results vindicated the accuracy of what you of your judgment? Look, the evidence is piling up by the minute, Kerry. I've been privileged to work with leading scientists, um, Kerry Gillam, who wrote the book Whitewash, 15 years of extraordinary research with access with her and, and another ex-GM scientist who saw the dangers, Jonathan Latham, got access to tens of thousands of papers that were smuggled out of companies like Monsanto, et cetera, that disclosed not just the cover-ups of cancer but how they captured the regulatory authorities, and bearing in mind that Australia doesn't really have its own approach to regulating chemicals. It just follows America, which we now know is captured. So, and the evidence just keeps mounting. That's why the court cases are now coming. And um, I, I really think we're into a new era and, uh, and I have no doubt that uh, at some stage, it's, I, I call it the sort of silent spring too. You know, Rachel Carson wrote 
wrote that definitive book in the late 60s that started the modern environmental movement. And that was about DDT partly, but some of the other bad organophosphates, etc., organochlorines. But I think glyphosate, even though it's not the worst, but it's the world's most widely used, a million tonnes per annum now. Its impacts on human health and biological health, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, are now being increasingly proven. I think it's 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 had its day, and, and uh, we know we can crop without it, just through biological means, and uh, we know we can uh, manage animals in uh, natural grasslands without it. So it's not like we we're, we're going to be caught if it's banned. We, we, we the solutions are there to get around it, but I think it's more and more it's the, the news on it gets worse and worse. Your book seems to have touched a sensitive nerve in Australia, but I'm wondering about its success in the United States and England. What response have you had to them? Well, I've, we've just uh, launched an international edition through Chelsea Green in the States, and uh, I've done two trips to the States and now to UK and also into Europe because there's great companies like Patagonia, clothing manufacturer who are incredibly environmentally conscious. They've re-engineered their entire supply chain with Regenag. I, was, I spoke at a conference in Boulder, Colorado last year on um, this whole regenerative agriculture and food movement, and I was gobsmacked at the number of both big and small multinationals and other companies around the world really positioning themselves in a supply chain with regenerative agriculture. And uh, so the response overseas um, has really been positive. And, and speaking in Europe, Amsterdam, Berlin and London and places, I, I realised that uh, Australia and America particularly and because of our collaboration, seems to be well in front of the Europeans who are now catching up quickly. But I think that sort of subsidisation and protection has probably delayed the hard-edged innovation you see in Australia and the States and places. Not all books are received with open arms or an open mind. I'm wondering what criticisms you've received. Oh, look, I've received criticisms and a few, a bit of trolling by some of the big chemical companies, people on the internet, etc., the criticisms, I don't believe, of scientific justification, but it's because you, you tread on very powerfully believed paradigms and invested interests. I mean, we're talking about the world's biggest multinationals behind the industrial scene. They're not going to give up in a hurry. They work very hard. They, I mean, they're permanently paid trolls in Australia, even with big money, to continually undermine or crash websites and stuff of people opposing the poisonous system. So... It's all to be expected, Kerry. Once uh, you take a, a different pathway, you're going to tread on powerful paradigms and expect a reaction. If you were to write that book today, you know, it's three years thereabouts that you wrote it, what additions would you make to it? Oh, look, there's so many more good stories emerging and which I, I wasn't aware of and I didn't have room for. You know, Ironically, the original manuscript was probably double what it was. It's and new knowledge, you know, things like we weren't aware of then on quorum sensing, this amazing reaction the microbiologists have been aware of that happens in the soil when you start triggering higher fertility and diversity, you get to this tipping point of soil building and health takeoff. And, and other nuances in the knowledge, you know, probably things like silvopastoral systems, which I think have got to be huge in Australia, that's growing food crops and grazing under um, tree food crops, which, you know, Spain and Portugal and other nations, South America, have been good at and we're not yet. When I see our landscapes as we go into increasingly hotter climates, there's a lot of country without shade for livestock and, and protection and let alone an extra food source like acorns or other foods. So there's a whole range of areas that need to be explored and, and I think others are doing that. There's more and more books coming out on it. So you can never say it all in one book, Kerry.
Charlie, here's a hypothetical for you. If you were made the federal government's Minister for Agriculture tomorrow, what would be one of the two changes you'd like to make? Well, um, if I could, I'd be working with the Minister of Education to start teaching as a basic prime function after English and maths an understanding of how nature and landscapes function as, as a core literacy. That would be the first thing, and I would then extend that into universities and agriculture courses. And, and we, have, we have a Minister of Agriculture in Western Australia, Alana McKinnon, who's trying to introduce regenerative agriculture through the entire scene. She's a remarkable woman. And so my second process would be if, if I was restricted to that role of I couldn't be sort of a, an emperor or, or a prime minister, if I was in the Ministry of Agriculture, I would try to shift the department now to working on soil biology and regenerative approaches rather than the endless extension of more chemical, more fertiliser to ever-dying soils. So I guess they'd be the two uh, major things I'd attempt. And what about at the university level and uh, the training of young people? You mentioned uh, Southern Cross University, uh, which is not renowned as an agricultural centre for education, but it seems like there's a ray of hope there. There does, and uh, I think it might be a, a, uh, an advantage not to be from a university or a course that's deeply embedded in the old paradigm or the traditional thinking. I mean, we need good soil science, physics and chemistry, but, you know, I, I, I sat through soil courses 40 years apart and they both still taught mainly physics and chemistry, no biology. Biology is the secret. So I think a, a sort of more, if you like, naive to the field, university like Southern Cross has a huge opportunity to come in very open-mindedly, bring the best whether it's traditional soil science and agronomy, but especially the new thinking and regenerative agriculture, uh, to bring that to the table. And with that really has to go, as you uh, exemplify as well as anyone, around knowledge of human ecology, how humans interact in, in the world and uh, things to do with paradigms and worldviews. So it's really a different form of education. It's not reductionist. It's got to be more holistic. It's got to be about working with rather than trying to dominate nature. Charlie, is there a second edition on the way? Hope not, Kerry. I'm too busy scratching myself to worry about it. Uh, maybe at some stage, but uh, uh, I'm more focused on uh, talking to lots of people, running workshops and uh, writing sort of articles at this stage. Well, Charlie, thanks for the time today. I know you're a very busy man. Thanks also for that wonderful book. I think it's been read by many, many farmers in this country and overseas and and I think we all love the way in which you told the story and the message that's in the story. And I'm sure it's on its way to becoming a classic. Well done. Congratulations. Now, thanks, Gary, and, and good on you guys for uh, extending into this field as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Ground Cover. Hit subscribe now so you never miss an episode. And for further resources on this topic, head to scu.edu.au forward slash RAA. This podcast has been produced by the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance on behalf of Southern Cross University, a collaboration designed to build a more resilient agriculture industry in Australia.